If you have your Bibles with you, why don't you grab them and why don't you grab them and turn to Revelation? Here you go. Um, if you don't know where, where Revelation is, go to the end of your Bible and then move backwards, just a few pages probably. You'll get to Revelation. Very last book in the Bible. For those of you that are joining us on our podcast, or those of you who are watching, are they watching yet? They are watching. <laughs> those of you who are watching on Facebook or are watching it later on on YouTube or wherever else we have it, we're glad you're here. Don't forget to like comment or share put your favorite emoji in there that is you know that's not like the face palm because that would be like oh that guy again um but you know we want to let you know uh, we want you to let us know that you're here and you're tuning in and uh, if you hear something that you think would have value for your other friends to hear you can share it and it's a way for us to get this message uh further across i know i am it sounds like i'm whistling or popping some so that's definitely on me let me see if i can fix that a little bit. All right, we are going to hop back into the uh, book of Revelation, last book of the Bible. Last summer, we went through this entire first half of uh, Revelation, a chapter at a time, beginning at chapter one, and we got as far as chapter 12. And then the summer was over, and we took a break from Revelation, and we taught through some other parts of the Bible. And so this year, as we're staring down summer, we realize over summer, people are traveling, people are in and out, and we figured that if we're switching topics or themes or places in the Bible every couple of weeks, it might make it difficult for you to feel like you are able to follow through uh, the entire body of content that we have. So what we're going to do is in June, and then through July, and I think it'll take us into August, we're going to actually finish out the book of Revelation. We're going to pick up where we stopped off last year. Don't worry if you weren't with us then. Um, we'll, we'll try and catch you up as best we can, and or you can go onto our website to our media page, and all of those messages are archived, so you can listen to the audio of any of those messages that you want to catch you up. Or if we refer to something um, that needs a little bit more research, we won't reteach it all. We'll just try and give you a, a bookmark you can go back to and find it. So we're going to dig into Revelation chapter 13 today. So in your Bibles, we'll be in this chapter. I will also give you a heads up. Um, I will be using a teaching style rather than a preaching style. You, we don't care, Pastor. What does that even mean? Um, preaching sometimes it's like, okay, we're going to make sure that we take a text and we develop it into the form of a sermon. So we're going to have you know, a, a big idea, a thesis. We're going to have a conclusion. We're going to have several supporting points, and we're going to walk it through uh, that way, expository preaching. So we're, we're commenting on the Scripture, we're illustrating it, and we're applying it to your life or concluding. Um, what I'm going to do instead uh, for the next couple weeks for my portion of the teaching through Revelation is I will actually probably just, I won't probably use notes, I'll probably just go through the Bible that I make my notes in, and we'll just go a verse at a time, and rather than trying to fit it into points, we'll just talk through what's going on, what it means, how we can apply it, any questions we have, and we'll just keep keep trucking along. So uh, with that in mind, you, you don't have a whole lot to write today, so if you want to pull your notes out, I have one really big idea. Um, I, I was going to try and make it shorter, but it's a little bit longer. But, but as you're pulling out your notes, let me just give you a little bit of introduction. Um, if you look at the Bible as, or how many books are in the Bible, first of all? Does anybody know? Because there's 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament, 66 books in all. And if your approach to reading this book is that it is really a collection of 66 individual stories, 66 individual volumes that are bound together in one book, um, you'll miss out on really what is an overarching story. This really isn't simply 66 books, and we have the sum being a little bit greater than the parts. This is one story, okay? There is one overarching plot that goes from the beginning to the end. And you can also see it represented individually in each book. Really, the story of the Bible tells, tells the story about where human beings came from, how we ended up in the condition that we are, and what God plans to do about it, both now and when time comes to an end. That's really what the whole book is about. But that plot is actually woven into one even more gigantic plot, and it is an age-old story of the conflict between God and Satan. Where it started, how it started, different battles and skirmishes along the way, what's happening today between God and Satan, how it will eventually end. So this whole Bible is really about the struggle between God 
and Satan, the animosity between the two, how it happened, where human beings came from in that story, how we ended up in the condition that we are, what God plans to do about it, and how time eventually ends. And that story is represented from the beginning to the end of the Bible, and I will tell you, Revelation is a microcosm of that entire story. In fact, it's the only one of the 66 books that says, read me, I'm special. If you go in chapter 1, it basically tells you, hey, read this letter, I'm special. And so it's important for us as believers or as unbelievers, as people who identify with Christians or as others, to read this book and wrestle with this book and think about what it's saying because it claims to contain the account of what was, what is, and what's coming. That's what the, the voice says to the Apostle John when he starts writing this letter down. It says, write down the things that were, the things that are, and the things that are coming. And so in this book, we have recorded some of the things that were. In fact, so far up to this point, we've seen there is a conflict between God and Satan that went back even before the garden. We see that in this book. Satan wanted to take God's place in heaven. God wasn't having it. God threw Satan out at the time when he was in heaven. Satan was an angel by the name of Lucifer. He tries to overthrow God. He's unsuccessful. Uh, he was successful in motivating a third of the angels to follow him. So he's always run his mouth and he's always been able to deceive people into choosing loyalty to him over God. He's always been good at it. He was even good at it with angels. And if he was good at it with angels, he's good at it with humans. And so we know before creation that happened. God cast Lucifer out of heaven along with all the angels that rebelled. And Lucifer took on the form of Satan and those fallen angels, the role of demons. And they had a new place to live called hell. And then God had creation and God made the earth and the earth was good. And then Satan, already having been defeated once, would not give up. And so then Satan got involved again in a second skirmish in the Garden of Eden. And we see that represented here. There was another attempt of Satan to interfere with what God did and Satan was successful. He deceived us into choosing him over God. And so we have a battle. Then God comes back and says, well, I've got a new plan. I will redeem the world through my son, Jesus Christ, and he will be the offspring of man. And, he, and we see this genealogy take place. And all through the Old Testament, we see the enemy trying to use anything that he could to make sure that God's next plan failed. We see genocide. We see... Uh, uh, we see conquering, we see sin, we see idolatry, we see all kinds of other things, but somehow, some way, God made sure that his son Jesus made it into the world even in spite of another attempt of genocide. He preserved Jesus, but the enemy didn't give up there. When Jesus became an adult, the enemy came after Jesus again. In fact, right before Jesus started his public ministry, the enemy comes to Jesus and says, if you, he says, look at all the power in the world. Look at all the kingdoms. Look at all the governmental. Look at all the economic systems. Look at all the political systems. This is my authority to give away to whomever I want, which is an interesting conversation. And he says, if you'll simply bow down to me, I'll give you all this authority. He tried again to interfere in God's plan to redeem the world. But Jesus thwarted the plan. He didn't bite. He wasn't deceived. And then he makes it the whole way to the Garden of Gethsemane. And the enemy comes to him again. And Jesus won the ultimate victory when Jesus went to the cross and Jesus died. And then he rose from the dead at his resurrection. We know for a fact at that point, both the enemy and the Lord knew that the final victory at that point was sealed. But the enemy, knowing that there is a day coming when his fate is sealed, is not going to go down without a fight. And so he, he, if you watch the train of thought, he went after God the Father and failed. He went after Jesus the Son and failed. And so what's he been doing from then until now? He's been going after the next best thing, God's kids. And Revelation up to this point, up to chapter 12, sets up the final showdown of showdowns. There have been many showdowns. There have been many battles. This has been a, you could go backwards in history and read Revelation at any point from 100 AD up to now, and they'd all say, we're living in this right now. They'd all say, we see a spirit of anti-God. We see a spirit of anti-Jesus. We see a spirit of anti-Christ. There is a system that's alive and operating right now that completely opposes the kingdom values. 
They would all say, this is happening right now. You can go back that far in history and see it, but what we see from chapters uh, 12 through 14 is there's just a little pause before John writes out what the final showdown looks like, and he introduces each of the agents or the characters that are going to be involved in this final showdown. And so up to chapter 12, we kind of see the things that are. The Revelation starts out by John writing letters to churches in real time that were in existence at that time. We see the things as they were. We see a couple chapters of things of maybe that might have happened in history that bring us up to this point. And now we're in this place where he's pausing to say, there is about to come, John is saying, there's about to come a savage, brutal outbreak of persecution against the followers of Christ. And he's going to show us what powers or what people are involved in it, how they're going to do it, and what the church is supposed to do when it happens. Um, And so the really big idea, I'll give you the really, and I'm sorry if I'm messing up the media people, let me give the really big idea first, and then we'll just start reading through a verse at a time and we'll see where we land today. But here's the really big idea. This takes everything uh, that I was trying to summarize about this chapter and puts it in an extremely long idea. But here we go. The really big idea is that In the age-old war between God and Satan, the enemy has deployed two beasts who have been, are currently, and will continue to wage all-out attack against God's people in increasingly alarming brutality and intensity. I decided you needed an extra sentence because that's a little bit of a downer. Okay. God's people do not need to panic. Instead, we need to persevere Be patient and be faithful. If I had to synthesize all 18 verses of this chapter into a couple sentences, realizing I've left a whole lot out of those sentences. In fact, probably the most scrutinized chapter and verses in the entire Bible are in Revelation 13. The most scrutinized. Some of the most uh, undecipherable riddles contained in Scripture are in chapter 13. We've been debating them ever since 86 AD, 90 AD. We still haven't come to a conclusion on them. So either they were tremendously ineffective riddles, or they're not riddles to be solved, or they're not riddles to be solved now. Um, But anyway, the, the big idea is this. I'm already kind of giving you a little bit of my perspective. This chapter does talk about one dragon, two beasts, and in the middle there is a, there's a hear ye, hear ye. There's a warning to everybody. But I believe what this chapter shows us is that throughout history, there has been this spirit, this powerful collection of ideas emanating from the spirit of the earth that has been, that is now, and will in some grand, great tribulation manifest itself as absolute all-out attacks against God's people in increasingly and alarmingly brutal methods. However, we don't need to panic over that. What we do need to do, according to this chapter, the message of the Lord through John to the church is to, be, to persevere, to be patient, and to be faithful. So let's look at it in a little more detail. Uh, I'll read to you uh, part of the passage here. Let's go verses 1 through 10. Uh, I will read to you from the New Living Translation. I'm going to teach out of the NIV. If a word or two is different here or there, I I apologize. Uh, Ultimately, the NIV is probably more my version of choice, and we may at time switch over to that, but that's a discussion for a different day. Uh, NLT, Revelation chapter 13, verse 1. Uh, We start with a manuscript problem, interestingly enough. Uh, But uh, if you go back to the end of chapter 12, what John sees at the end of chapter 12 is the dragon... Now, the dragon we learned earlier on is a representation of Satan. So he sees the dragon standing on the shore of this great sea. And what had just happened was the dragon was chasing after a lady trying to kill her children or her child, but was unsuccessful. And what we, the, there's lots of different interpretations. The best one, the one I feel is most accurate, is that that woman represents Israel and that her offspring was Jesus. And because he was unsuccessful in killing Jesus off, he is now left with this big sea in front of him and he's not going to give up. So what we leave them there. So here's the dragon standing over the sea. This is all apocalyptic 
literature, and it's filled with allegories and interpretation and Jewish imagery and all kinds of stuff. So we have to think carefully. So here's what we see. Then I saw, this is John, I saw a beast rising up out of the sea. It had seven heads and horns. I'm sorry, I can't, can't see. He has seven heads and ten horns. I can't, I can't even see it there. And I saw a beast rising up out of the sea. It had seven heads and ten horns with ten crowns on its horns. And written on each head were names that blasphemed God. Let's continue. The beast looked like a leopard, but it had the feet of a bear and the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave the beast his own power and throne and great authority. I saw that one of the heads of the beast seemed wounded beyond recovery, but the fatal wound was healed. Now, interesting here, just to put a, th- a thought in your mind. He sees one of the, how many heads did the beast have? Seven. How many of them were wounded fatally? And, and what was healed, the head or the wound? Okay, that's important. We'll come back to that in a second. The whole world marveled at this miracle and gave allegiance to the beast. They worshipped the dragon for giving the beast such power, and they also worshipped the beast. Now, this should sound very familiar to stuff we sang this morning. Who is as great as the beast? They exclaimed. Who could fight against him? Who could stand against him? Almost similar to the worship songs we sang this morning, that song, The Lion and the Lamb, right? And can continue on. Then the beast was allowed to speak. He was allowed to speak. So even in all of this, God is still in control. Okay? He's determining the limitations of the beast. Speak great blasphemies against God, and he was given authority to do whatever he wanted for 42 months, and he spoke terrible words of blasphemy against God, slandering his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And the beast was allowed to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them, and he was given authority to rule over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all the people who belonged to this world worshipped the beast. And we'll pause there for a second. I'm just going to put my notes down because there's just a big shadow here and I can't read them. So, so they're not going to help me. So I'll just go here. All right. Back to verse one. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea. We talked about that. And I saw a beast coming out of where? Where did he see a beast? Right. This is John right now. He sees a beast coming out of what? The sea. Okay. A couple different ways that this has been interpreted. One people say it is the sea of humanity. And they use that as a defense to prepare us for this idea that this beast in real life is going to be an actual historic person, okay? So two of the questions that smack all of us in the face in this whole chapter have to do with identity and timing. Who are these two beasts? Are they real people or are they some power or some group of people or some Uh, political system or governmental party or false religion? Is it a real person in real time and there's only going to be one of these people? Or is it something else? So identity is one of the questions we have to deal with. Who are these beasts? The second question is timing. Is John talking about things that had already happened at the time he wrote his letter? And he's encoding them so when the letters are sent out, he's not arrested by the Romans for sedition. He's not calling out the Roman government and naming them by name. He's not naming Nero. He's not naming Domitian. He's not naming all these other guys. But he's sending out letters to the churches to say, you need to be aware these people are antichrist. So was it something in the past? Was it something in the present? Or is he talking about something that has no historical connection? Is it something that he's writing to those churches and all churches say these things are coming in the future? So those are the big, the big surface questions that we have here. Who are these two beasts? The beast from the sea, the beast from the land. And when is this stuff, what's the timing of all these things? Can we put it into any historical context? So he sees a beast coming out of the sea. Some people say, what well, means the sea of people? That's not the best translation. If you go back to all ancient literature, even in the Old Testament, the sea, the word that John uses here, is used as imagery to mean um, the, the kind of the, the crock pot for all evil. In fact, they believe that there was, you know, ancient mythology believed that there was a, a beast that lived in the sea called Leviathan. And that in the sea, you know, is where all bad things come out of. In other words, if you took all of evil, everything that's bad, and you turned it into water, you could make a sea out of it. And so the best translation here, the one I think that is broadest, it doesn't exclude other ones. The broadest translation here I believe John's trying to show us is what the enemy is summoning here 
is something that really is the personification of all evil. The last greatest final enemy of the church will be something that won't just be bad. It will be the worst of the worst as the worst. The true sum of all evil. He comes rising up out of the sea of evil. And he takes on this really grotesque. Have you ever seen people that have tried to draw pictures of this beast? If you Google it, it's very interesting. You'll see some great pictures. You'll actually see hieroglyphics of it too. Um, What he sees is this beast that uh, it's grotesque, it's terrifying, it is ugly, it is a composite of human and animal form. So what do we know about this beast? He has seven heads and ten, ten what? Horns. And on top of each of those horns is what? Crowns. Okay, Greek word, there's two different types of crowns the New Testament talks about. One Paul talks about, if you run a race and you get the prize, you earn a crown. It's a prize, one word for that. There's another Greek word, different kind of crown. It's called, you might have heard this one in, um, uh, there's a hymn that has this word in it. There's another Greek word called diadem. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown of... Right, that one. This is the Greek word used here. There are ten diadems. Are they on the heads or the horns? Horns. Horns on animals serve them what practical purpose? Defense or Offense. So what's John trying to show us? Oh, let's see, that's a whole month-long sermon. So, couple, if I were to get up front and just talk to you about the different theories behind each of these things, we would not have enough time for me to even run down the history of the commentary. So you're just going to have to give me a little bit of break and understand what I'm going to You're going to have to trust that I've spent a lot of time in prayer and study. Even last night in bed, I'm literally reading a thick commentary. Chase is like, what are you reading? I'm like reading a commentary on Revelation. He's like, oh, is that what you're teaching the grown-ups about tomorrow night? I was like, I, I, I hope so. You know, Reading through all these things that people have written. Let me just give you some broad conclusions here that I think are safe for us, um, knowing that you possibly could be much more specific. Some of this imagery, if you were a Jew and John was raised a Jew, would be familiar because if you knew the Old Testament, you'd go back to Daniel chapter 7 and be like, oh, so one of the other prophets has written about something similar. Daniel wrote about a vision he had where he saw this uh, composite thing with animals, you know, parts of a leopard and a lion and a bear. And in Daniel's day, it represented four different conquering kingdoms that would come after the kingdom that they were under, Nebuchadnezzar and others. So it could be, could be that John is tipping his cap to Daniel and saying this beast that's coming up out of the sea is really all these different animals. I'm not going to go that far. Um, I think there's different ingredients of each of these animals that we need to see here. You know, you've got the speed of a leopard. You've got the controlling power of a bear. You've got the voice and the terror and the intimidation of a lion. Um, It also comes in contrast to who the Lord actually is. Um, You have ten horns which are used for offense, and on those are ruling crowns. And I think it's safe for us to say that whoever or whatever this beast is is going to have a lot of brute strength behind it. So much so that it will actually have ruling authority to exercise its, whether it's military or physical force. This is somebody that is not just a little idea. This is, it has at least a human capacity to it to be able to impose a violent, brutal force upon people and it has seven heads on which are written what blasphemous names against God so we have this grotesque we know a few things about this first beast he comes from the sea he's got uh, seven heads upon each head is written a blasphemous name against God comes comes speaking and talking blasphemy against God he is strong or it is strong and brutal and has ruling authority to be able to exercise his brute strength of offense and attack. And then we learn some more in the next couple of verses, don't we? We learn some more. Um, He is given power, not by God, but he's given power by the dragon. He's given power to rule and to reign. And there's this crazy thing that happens. He appears to have a what? A fatal wound. Now, in some of the translations, it uses the word he was smited, which would indicate he was wounded by the sword. Whether that happens literally or not, we don't know. But it looks like one of the heads is wounded. But what happens? The fatal wound is healed. It does not say that the one of the seven heads is destroyed and that head is brought back to life. And now the head functions. 
Whatever the wound was is healed and the beast keeps moving on. There are some fascinating parallels historically to what this was. In the time of John, there's a lot of people who believe that John was talking about the Roman Empire as the beast out of the sea because there's a lot of parallels there. If you read back through history, the Roman Empire was obviously very, very, very brutally set against Christians. And in every single way, economically, socially, politically, and physically, was annihilating and wiping out Christians. Not only that, but almost every single one of their emperors set themselves up with divine rights. They were deifying secular authority. In other words, they were taking authority not from God that they took for themselves, and they were making themselves into people with godlike status and godlike control, even on their own coins. They would print the icon in Greek, E-I-K-O-N, same word as mark of the beast, icon, image. And on those coins, for some of them it would say, uh, the savior of the world. Okay? Uh, Nero and Domitian both took upon themselves godlike status, had people actually worship them. And they had priests set up locally in each city, part of the priests of the imperial cult, whose job was to make sure that everybody was showing worship to the statues of the emperors. And if you didn't, i.e. if you were a Christian and you didn't bow down, they were coming after you. Nero was one of these guys that a lot of people believed was referred to by, they thought he was perhaps this, this seventh head that got wounded. And there's a whole long historic story behind that. Um, I would love to roll it out for you. I'm out of time. I can't, I can't give it to you this morning. But there's a lot of people who thought that it was Nero. Because uh, Nero, if you know his story, he was alleged to have committed suicide at some point. He was the leader who became very unpopular. The, the, the parliament had met and decided we're going to dethrone him. They sent soldiers over to his hideaway. He heard they were coming. He slashes his own throat with a sword. Cuts off his head with the sword. But the rumor was that that was all staged. The rumor that was sweeping the nation over the next months and years was that he actually staged that and he escaped and he was living with the Parthians. And there was a rumor that he was going to reemerge, resurrected from the dead, and come back and resume control of the empire and be more brutal than he was before. So there are some people who think that, you know, this is not talking about something in the future. This was talking about something then. The problem, there are many, 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 many problems with that um, particular interpretation. But I also, here's my theory. I need to be careful about theories. Here's my advice. As I read through Revelation, and I've studied it for 20 years, I don't think some of these things are mutually exclusive. I think it is possible for us to say there have been, a, there is a spirit of Antichrist that has been existent since the beginning. That there are Antichrists who have risen up and taken human form throughout history. And there will also be the Antichrist, who will be the sum total of all evil, who at some point in the future will play out more of these prophecies and some ultimate manifestation of the final events of Revelation. I don't see that they're all mutually exclusive. I don't see any place that rules that out. I'm getting ahead of myself for a little bit. Um, the, The simplest explanation I can give you is this. I know from studying my Bible that there is a day and an hour that God has decided when the end will come. The Bible tells us that. It says no man knows the day and the hour. Not even who? Not even Jesus or the angels. Are you tracking with me? This is really important. The Bible doesn't say that there isn't a day and an hour, that God's just twiddling his thumbs and waiting for us to get to some certain point in history, and then all of a sudden he's going to press the button and it's in place. It says he knows when. He knows. And nobody but he knows. Does Satan know? But does he know the end is coming? Thank you, Dave. He knows the end is coming. Now here's my question. If Satan doesn't know when the end is coming, do you think he's going to let himself be caught flat-footed? And when God decides at the end is here, that he's going to all of a sudden have to start whipping up the spirit of the Antichrist and getting a human being in place. He doesn't know. My thinking is, his way of hedging his bets is to always make sure that this spirit is operating. That at any given time, when he sees that God is doing his thing, he can spring into action. He always has to have somebody or something in place to be able to make sure that he can capitalize on these events. Now, that, that, that hinges greatly on my interpretation of 2 Thessalonians chapter uh, 2, 3, and 4 and, and the man of lawlessness. But I don't think that it is in any way mutually exclusive to say that we could have seen Antichrist, a spirit, operating since the beginning. There's always been a spirit of the world that opposes everything about God. The enemy has always, the whole way back to the pharaohs of Egypt, 
the whole way up through the times of the Bible, through the Romans, the whole way up through history. That, I mean, in our lifetime, if you've been a Christian for more than 20 or 30 years and ever cracked Revelation, how many different uh, identities to the Antichrist have we decided we've come up with? Seriously. Now, either they're all wrong or they all could have been positive. We don't know. Are they, is it an Antichrist? Is it the Antichrist? I don't know, but I will say this. I think spending a lot of time on conjecture is a waste of time and not the point of Revelation. Because here's the reality. If you believe in a rapture of the church that happens before the worst of the worst comes, which I do, the Bible says a prerequisite for really revealing the Antichrist is the rapture of the church happens first. And then we'll figure out who it really is. So you can spend a lot of time cracking codes and, you know, figuring out 666 and doing all your, your gematosis and your cryptology and your everything else. Or we can look at the bigger principles and say, what does this mean to me today? What it means to us today is I believe there always has been, there is now, and it will increase a spirit of Antichrist that at times historically has manifested in individuals who have functioned as a human historic Antichrist. And that at some point in history... <laughs> We're going to get to this place here. It's going to escalate. This is a cycle. The enemy has been doing this. He's still doing it. He's going to keep doing it. He's not learning new tricks. It's tribulation after tribulation after tribulation, trial after trial after trial, annihilation after annihilation after annihilation. And many times he seemed to be beaten back and wounded. And we think, man, we've got some peace. And he comes back in a new devious form. This beast, no matter how many times he's been smited, still finds a way to come back. And he has tremendous vitality. And even though you cut off one leader or one leader's brought down or one empire fades, it seems like another one has risen in its place. This beast is nothing for us to take lightly. The beast out of the sea. He continues on. He's been given permission to rule and reign and actually overcome the saints, it says. You know what that overcome word overcome means? It means put to death. The beast is given limitations by God for a certain amount of months to do certain few things. Uh, was it 42 months, three and a half years? Is that literal or symbolic? That's one, it's one or the other, and I don't know which it is. Um, but I will say if you study the Bible from the Old Testament to the New Testament, that number, three and a half years, is, is, you see it a lot. I think you see it 34 times, if I'm not mistaken. 34 times you see that number represented. Here's what I do know. Whether it is a literal three and a half years or whether it is a symbolic period of history, here's what it means. There is a definite beginning and a definite end. God decides, number one, how much time the enemy gets to do this. God decides when it starts, and not a day sooner or later. God decides when it ends, not a day sooner or later. And it is not an, it is not an unendurable period of history. But there is a period of time where God will let this beast operate with less limitations than he's ever had before. He will be given permission to say and do whatever he wants. And what is the main thing he says? What is the main content? Blasphemy. To speak against God. And how does he really prove, how does this beast really prove he's superior to God and his followers? He shows it by conquering saints. What does that mean? What that means is that he will have the power and will be given permission to put to death Christians. Now, can you imagine any more way for this beast, whoever or whatever it is, I, th I personally think it's a combination of both. I think it's a combination of governmental, military, economic, political, social systems that will be under the authority of a human or a few human beings who will function as this antichrist. My opinion could be wrong. Either way, here's what's going to happen. He's basically going to say, your safest bet is allegiance and worship to me. I can provide for you. I can protect you. I am the ruler. And all these others think that they're right. Well, if their God's right, let him spare them. And he starts mowing down Christians. And he appears to get away with it. And the ultimate way he blasphemes God is you can't even protect your own people. And so you have this terrifying period of history and listen, there are some people who, if they heard this message today, there are some people on the earth in real time would say, I'm living in that right now. You and I aren't living in that right now, right here, okay? So let's, I think the problem with Western thought as we approach this is, is way off in the future. The problem with you know, Eastern thought is this is all happening right now. <laughs> and maybe we're both right. Who knows? But it's something that the enemy has always done. Has he annihilated followers of God in the past in masses? Yes. 
Yes, he has. Will he do it again in the future? Yes, only this time it is more savage and more brutal. He's given authority to rule over every tribe and people and language and nation, so it's not isolated to one pocket. This beast will rule the entire earth. It's a universal thing. And all the people who belong to this world will worship the beast. What a terrible place to stop. Oh, I can get one more verse in. Okay. So here's the thing you have to see all through the Bible and especially here in Revelation. God is preparing us for something. All through the Bible you will see this. There is a division between the followers of God and the not followers of God. There's a division. Okay. All through the Bible. And moving towards the end of time, God says this division, this separation between the people loyal to God and the people loyal to anti-God. You can't be, you're for him or against him. Have you heard that before? He who is not for me is against me. And I think us Westerners have allowed for a middle ground. The people who are quietly, privately for God, but publicly not aligning ourselves with him out of fear of social, economic, or physical, or verbal disadvantage and you don't see that group of people anywhere in revelation you see two groups of people you see those who are loyal to the one true lion and his son the lamb and they are willing they are not willing they are not willing to exchange loyalty to god for earthly safety not willing to do it and you see another group The only other group you see are those who are loyal to the beast. They prefer earthly protection from God rather than eternal protection from the Antichrist. You don't see a middle ground. And what it's telling us is that there's coming a point in history where nominal, lukewarm, middle-of-the-road Christianity will disappear. You will be for God or you will clearly be against him. Because he says he sees all the people who belong to this world worshiping the beast. I don't belong to this world. I'm just a passer through. I don't belong to this world. If you know Jesus, you don't belong to this world. You're just passing through. You're an exile. You're an exile who's here for a little while. But you're passing through. Can we go on to the next verse? I'll, I'll, I'll wrap it up right here. Can we go on to the next one? They're the ones, the people who didn't worship, they're the ones whose names, I'm sorry, the ones who were worshiping the beast, the earth dwellers. They're the ones whose names were not written in the book of life that belongs to the lamb who was slaughtered before the world was made. There's another manuscript problem with that verse. I just have to leave it alone today. Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. This is the really heavy part. Anyone who is destined for prison will be taken for prison. And go one more for me. Anyone who is destined to die by the sword will die by the sword. This means that God's holy people must endure persecution patiently and remain faithful. A lot of stuff there. I wish I could soften this for you. Many translators have done so. Depending on what Bible you have, they might have already gotten into this passage and tried to soften it. But the original language is strong and powerful. And we're going to conclude on this point right here. And we'll pick up with the next beast next week. First of all, we see this great separation. If you know God and he is your Lord and Savior, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And what it tells us is you're not part of this group that's going to bow its knee to a beast. When you're faced with all the different things this beast and the next one get to do, we tell, it's telling us that as a Christian, number one, you will be more visible. You will be put in a place where you will have to more objectively identify with Christ than it ever before as history moves along. And to identify with Christ will bring with it any of the following forms. Verbal abuse and harassment. Shaming. Singling out. Bashing. In ways that are more brutal and creative and painful than ever before created in history. And there have been some rough stuff. It will bring with it economic boycott, we learn later on in this chapter. It will be very difficult for Christians to make a living, to conduct the very basic economic transactions. By you identifying with Christ, it will hurt you financially as we get close to the end. We learn that from this. We also learn in the most extreme form that it will put you in immediate physical danger. Now, this can sound really scary. There are some people who aren't destined for that. People have followed Jesus and they have passed on and they've never had to face that. 
Maybe you'll never have to face that. I don't know the answer to that, but I know that the closer we get to this great tribulation, this is what comes along with it. And I would like to soften it somehow. And that's as soft as I can make it. That's what's coming. And here's how John interjects between the two beasts. He stops and he basically says, hear ye, hear ye. Reader. Here's what he says. Anyone destined to die by the sword, what will happen? They will die by the sword. Anyone destined for prison, to prison they will go. That is different people, real quickly, different people have tried to translate that verse different ways to soften it. One of the ways they translated is they took the word, uh, or they took, uh, they, they changed the tense, and they said, anyone who puts to death another by the sword, they will be put to death by the sword. Anyone who throws another into prison, they will be thrown into prison, which sounds like an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, right? That softens it. That actually puts the warning against the perpetrators of this violence, but that's not what it actually says. And there's another one that changed it to the, I think, the future inten- infinitive or the present infinitive tense where they say, uh, I won't even go down that road. But here's what it really actually says. God knows the destiny and the future of all his children. This is a really hard theological concept. God knows the destiny of all his children. He knows and he's destined, and his will will be brought about sometimes through us suffering injustice, through us suffering tragedy, through us suffering persecution, through us suffering loss, and yes, through some of us suffering death. The Bible doesn't hide that from us, but for many of us, we haven't faced anything like what is coming. A few of us have. Most of us haven't. We face littler things called trials and tests. Paycheck comes late. It's less than what we thought. We have drama in our family. They're falling out with a friend. You know, we're the victim of shaming or bashing on social media. We, injustices. We lose a child we shouldn't have lost. We lose a family member to a tragedy. We're dealt a legal or financial injustice. What this says is that if God's destiny for you is to suffer injustice, then you will suffer injustice. If part of God's future involves an extreme, if part of God's future for people, of, for his followers is to die by the sword, no matter what you think or you do, that's going to be, you're going to die by the sword. If part of his idea for how he's going to bring about your blessing is that it's going to involve prison, then to prison you will go. And what John could have said here is, so be ready and stock up gun. Well, they didn't have guns. Stock up swords and whatever they had, slingshots and, you know, whatever they had. Arm yourselves. Be zealots. Go take down the Romans. It's not what he says. He could have said, in light of this, build caves and go underground. In light of this, be very careful about identifying with Christ publicly. What does he say? He says, this means God's holy people must endure persecution patiently and remain faithful. Here's really, and it's the same conclusion if we had studied both beasts. Here's really what it boils down to. How do you respond to the day-to-day trials and tests you have now? Are you loyal to Christ or do you question him over everything? Hypothetically, I... I can't imagine a scenario, you know, I've watched some of those creepy old 1980s reel-to-reel movies about the end of time. They've scarred me forever. Don't go watch them. And I, you know, like, what would I do if I'm facing a guillotine and I'm holding a helium balloon and all these other kinds of things, and, and they're terrifying. I don't even know how I can begin to answer that question if in the far less severe trials and tests I go through, if my default response is to waver in my loyalty to Jesus every single time. Are we preparing ourselves to be people who truly are loyal to God regardless of its cost to us economically, socially, politically, relationally, physically? Are we prepared for that even in the day-to-day trials we're experiencing now? And it's not going to get easier, the Bible tells us. It's going to become more extreme. 
Are you living somewhere in the middle in your relationship with Christ? Have you fully identified with him? Because I will tell you this. It's going, this nominal lukewarm Christianity is going to disappear. There won't be a place for it. I see it happening now. I see it happening now. The beauty is, is that the kingdom of heaven is still open for business. And the kingdom of heaven has its arms open. Well, pastor, how can I ever move past the place where I am right now and love Jesus enough that when I face trials and tests, I can remain faithful and patiently endure? Endurance is to remain steadfast in the face of persecution. That's what it means. It means when you're tested, you're steady. I'm steady when tested. That's what patience means. Well, I've never been tested like that. You can borrow my 14-month-old for an afternoon. Are you steady when tested? John's counsel to the followers of God are this. You will be tested. You will be persecuted. Instead of fighting back, instead of resisting, humbly submit and obey Jesus. Well, how can I feel like that about him? The only way you can ever feel that way about him is to know him intimately. That's the only way. That's the only way you'd ever die for somebody is if you know them intimately. There's somebody you'd probably die for right now. Right now. I've talked to any husband in this room. Any husband. And they'd say, I would, without thinking about it, if a bad guy comes through the front door, I'm not shoving my wife in front of them, I'm going. I would hope to God that would be your answer. If it is not your answer, email me tomorrow morning. And we've got Tawny and Brian and other people who can clean that up for you. There are probably people, if you're a parent, you have kids, you got a, you're somebody, you have a BFF, you've got somebody, there is probably somebody that instinctively, if, if it came down to it, would you put your life on the line for them? Would you exchange your life for theirs? And you would say yes. How do you feel like Jesus that way? How do you move yourself to say, yeah, if it came down to this, no matter what the cost, I wouldn't forsake loyalty with him to preserve myself. You have to know him as intimately as you know your spouse more intimately than you know your children. Because the, the reason you do that for them is because you know them. They have wrapped themselves around your heart. And even though they might be a knucklehead today, you would still take a bullet for them. Nothing can change the way you feel about them. If you don't want to stay, people in the nominal area of Christianity, there's one reason why. It's because they don't know Jesus as well as they could. And they don't want to know him because you have exactly as much of Jesus as you want. No more, no less. So how do we prepare ourselves for that day? We don't focus on decoding the Antichrist. We don't focus on figuring out the seven heads. We focus on the true lion and the true lamb. We don't need to be distracted by what he's doing. He's been doing it. Let's not get panicked. Let's focus our eyes on the lion, the lamb, the one who roars, the one who said, yes, this will happen. There will come an end. And the end of the book is great. We've got to get through some of these chapters, but the end of the book is great. The end of the story is great. So do not panic. Do not go home and build your bunker. Unless you've already built one, then okay. Right? That's not what this is about. It's about you and I answering basic questions. How am I handling the tests and the trials of life right now? Are they either growing me into the type of a person who's becoming more loyal to Christ, or are they growing me into the type of person who will dump Christ the moment he doesn't perform for me the way that I want? That sets you up for somebody else to perform for you that you'll follow. Let's bow our heads and our hearts. Worship team, come back. They're going to reprise a song we sang earlier. Next week, we'll cover 13 and 14. Here's my invitation every week. Are you ready to bow your knee and surrender control of your life to the lion through his son, the lamb? He is ready for you. He is ready to receive you into his kingdom. He is ready to put his seal on your head. He is ready to put his protection around your heart. He's ready to fill you with his power, with his character, with his person. He's just waiting for your permission. He's waiting for you to accept him. He's waiting for you to invite him. So it's simple as A, B, C. Admit, believe, choose. Do you admit that you are a sinner and on your own have fallen short of the standard that Jesus set? We're all in that category. But will you admit that? Will you humble yourself and admit it? I am a sinner in need of saving. B, do you believe in Jesus, God's son? 
who left heaven, came to earth, took on the form of a human being, lived the life you should have lived but didn't, died the death you and I deserve to die as a substitute in our place so that God accepts you and me not based on our resume or anything that we've done, but based on Jesus, on his resume and everything that he did. And will you choose to give up control of the decision-making of your life? Some of us just want to accept the sinner and the savior part, but when it comes, we still want control. No, you've got to give that up. Because that's how you get power, by giving it up. If you're ready to make that exchange, your life for his this morning, let me lead you in a simple prayer. You can pray right now. Dear Jesus, I admit I've sinned. I believe in you, Jesus. I believe in your life, your death, your resurrection. Thank you for forgiving my sins. I welcome you into my life. I choose you as my Lord. I choose you as my king. I bow my knee not to a fake lion who looks like a lamb, but to the true lion and the true lamb. Seal me. Teach me. Grow me. Help me to be faithful in the tests and the trials that are common to every human being, that when I'm tested, I won't break down. I'll break through. In your name we pray. Amen. If you're willing and able, stand with me this morning. I'm going to invite our prayer team to come forward. This is not the type of message that I wanted to end down. I wanted to end up. We sang a song earlier, and this was not the plan. But we sang this song earlier, and as we were singing that song, I was like, oh, that is so much the response to Revelation chapter 13. You, we heard about the first beast. He's running around pretending he's a lion. You got the second beast running around pretending he's a lamb. And it says many people are going to be fooled and thinking they're really a lion and really a lamb. And they're going to follow them. What better response to say, uh-uh. <laughs> I'm not following some counterfeit. I'm following the real lion. I have submitted and been changed by the real lamb, the son of God who came to take away the sin of the world. So I asked Keith and the team to come back at the end and lead us in that second song. It isn't one of these quiet contemplative ones. It has some fire and power to it. But I want you to not walk out of here panicked. I want, to walk, want you to walk out of here empowered. I want you to walk out of here confident. I want you to walk out of here ready. Yes, there is a counterfeit running around, but we've got the real thing in a world who is created to worship. You and I were created to worship. Now, what we worship is up for us, but the world is going to find something to worship. We've got the real answer. And what connects them to him is a changed life that you and I carry. So our prayer team is here. If you need prayer for anything, come down and see one of them. They will pray with you about anything that's going on. They'll hold it in confidence. You can trust them. But as Keith and the team lead us, let's go out of here on a high note today. Let's go out of here in power. Let's go out of here in confidence. Let's go out of here with our face set like a flint. I don't know what you're tested by this week. I know what I'm being tested by. I confess it to my elders. And I said, I had a moment when I was reading Revelation 13. I said, if I can't even pass this test, if I'm going to let this get me, I've got a whole lot more growing I need to do. But I made a decision. I'm not going to let this test derail my faith. I'm not going to let this test get me to go to God with my long list of gripes. I didn't sign up for this, that, the other, blah, 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 blah. You're giving me a raw deal. I'm going to pass this test. And if I need to patiently endure, and if that injustice never gets righted, what I do know is that if God's allowing it to happen, there's a victory on the other side of it. And I'm not going to shortchange my victory by giving up in the middle of the trial. If I need to take a few bullets and flesh wounds here and there to get to what God's promised, then I trust him enough that what he has promised is far worth the fight. So I don't know who that's for today. But if you're fighting and your fighting is getting you nowhere, patiently endure and trust him that on the other side of it is victory that you wouldn't believe if he told you now. Patiently endure and be faithful.